What if we didn't turn it in? You want to keep it? Well, <laughs> he wants to keep it. Well, well, well that's a hot one. <laughs> Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Yeah. Because we go to prison. Why? Why? Because it's stealing. Stealing. Yeah. Stealing from who? From him? <laughs> Hell, he won't mind. <laughs> oh, because he's dead, right? <laughs> That's pretty funny. He's dead. He won't mind. Right? I said See, we take this bag you. back to the truck and we pretend like we were never here. Fuck yeah. Why not? Why not? Because we get caught. That's why. Oh, like, that's oh why hell. Not. Come on. Well, I'll tell you what. Stay the hell out of it then. You know, we don't need you. It'd just be more money for us. <laughs> I don't want to stub you another fancy word, Lou, but does the term accomplice mean anything to you? Come on. That's stupid. Why, but Hank, Hank, why, why would we get caught? Because it's a lot of money, Jacob. Somebody's bound to be looking for it. When they find that plane what? and the money's not in bullshit. it, no, that's not bullshit. bullshit. They're going to come looking for us. Bullshit. This is dirty money. And, and as far as that guy's concerned, the cops don't even know he exists. Nobody knows about this but us. See there? Nobody knows but us. It's like we came out here just on a hike and found, and found lost treasure. <laughs> right? It's the American dream and a goddamn gym bag. He, he just wants to walk away from it. You work for the American dream, you don't steal it. Then this is even better. If this guy is a dope dealer, then you know, like we're talking about, then that means we're like Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'll right? tell you what, you got a beautiful wife at home. You're about to have a baby. I know you ain't pulling down that much at the feed mill. Wouldn't you love to have a piece of this? Well, yes, I would, but. We can't just take it. I mean, hey, what if there's a reward? Maybe there's a reward and they'll, they'll give us. Maybe there's not. How about this? I tell you what, I'll bet you $10,000, just one of these packets, that when they find this plane, there's no mention of this money. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Andy! You Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 296, A Simple Plan. The American Dream in a Goddamn Gym Bag. We're talking about the 1998 movie, not the band. Although that would be cool. <laughs> if we just do a full episode on some shitty pop punk band that I never liked. Although they, they like had a moment in the sun, you know what I mean? They were like really popular for a window of time. I don't think they were called A Simple Plan, though. Just Simple Plan, yeah. <laughs> Drop the uh. <laughs> Folks. Follow us on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. If you have yet to do so, please, during this holiday season, take a little bit of time out of your busy schedule and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's been a while since we've seen a new one. We're desperate. <laughs> yeah, and do us a favor and recommend us to a friend as like a Christmas gift or a holiday <laughs> gift. A Christmas gift for your friend. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, we love the positive reinforcement, but we need more. Yeah, it's not enough. 
A lot of depression going on here. And you can find yourself a little bit of a stocking stuffer by reaching out for a free sticker. I, I have some. Ready to give them away. Let us know on Twitter, and we'll send that out to you. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Been sort of quiet on there lately, but never know when it'll pick back up. <laughs> what do you mean? As far as logging movies? or I think so. Okay. Maybe. Is that you think that's what you mean? I think it's been quiet lately <laughs> for us logging movies. Yeah. Maybe more so for you. I logged a couple this week. Okay. I noticed that you didn't like the reviews. Mm, okay i need to get on <laughs> well the one thing that is tough is and maybe i'm just not a good user of letterbox but to me the way that i think of going to find things that you have checked in is i have to like click on one of the things that you might have liked to find your name and then click on you i just go by the people that liked my last review i click on all of their names and like their last reviews okay <laughs> that's all i do yeah yeah there's not a lot of reciprocation either. It's sort of no. annoying. Right. It's not exactly a I scratch your back, you scratch my back I know. community. Yeah. Let's say one review <laughs> has 18 likes. So uh-huh. I'll go to all 18 people and like their most recent stuff right as I'm posting a new review. And then my next review gets four likes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what are the rest of you? I have these little moments in the sun with certain people where they'll comment on one of mine. And then all of a sudden, they'll do a little exploration of my history and like several things. And, and then you know, unfollow you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next time I check, no longer. <laughs> they just, they've deleted their account. <laughs> anyway, let's get into a simple plan because there's so much to talk about. Totally. I think this is a little bit of an underseen gem. Yeah, I had never watched it. And now I'm finding myself feeling like I wish Sam Raimi did more movies like this. Exactly. 1998, directed by Sam Raimi, screenplay by Scott B. Smith, based on Smith's 1993 novel of the same name. He also wrote the novel The Ruins, which was also made into a movie. It's a pretty cool B-horror movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I've seen parts of it. (laughs) (laughs) Though the film was met by very positive reviews, I'm talking about a simple plan. For example, Ebert ranked it fourth on his best films of 1998 list and it was nominated for two academy awards best supporting actor billy bob thornton and smith for best adapted screenplay a simple plan did underperform at the box office grossing just 16.3 million against a 17 million dollar budget that might be part of the reason it sort of doesn't exist Mm. that much nowadays it is on streaming this one is available on HBO Max, I believe. Correct? Yeah, that's where I watched it. I have it in my Voodoo library because I purchased it, but there is no U.S. Blu-ray release for it. I think there is a Blu-ray release that's region-free, like an import, but I don't have it. That's a shame. Yeah. It's often compared to Fargo, which came out two years prior. Midwestern crime with a little bit of comedy in there? Well... I don't think there's any comedy in a simple plan. No, it's a I lot think the darker. main difference is the tone. The similarity is it's snowy. Yeah. It's a crime thriller, Midwestern people in Minnesota. And everyone sort of knows that Sam Raimi and the Coens are friends. They collaborated a little bit on different projects. I think you can get a little bit of laughs out of how out of control 
Hank's brother is just how he cannot be trusted with information. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's maybe a, a, a very dark humor to a it, hint. but not an intentional sure, humor. Sure, yeah. Doesn't quite have that quirkiness. No. So if you haven't seen A Simple Plan, I would recommend checking it out on HBO Max first. Hopefully yeah. this will be a new recommendation for some of our listeners. I know that from Twitter and, and different things like that, that some of our listeners have seen it. It was a long journey to the screen. In 1993, before the novel was even published, Mike Nichols purchased the film rights. People would know Mike Nichols as the director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, Closer, Closer. Primary Colors, (laughs) lots of different things. Cool dude. He later stepped down due to scheduling conflicts. Ben Stiller then joined the project to direct. He actually spent nine months working on the script with Smith, and then Stiller departs due to budget disputes with the studio. Wow. I know that stuff happens a lot, and we've talked about this kind of in more recent episodes, but I just can't imagine like giving like nine months to a project and and just being like, all right, I'm just going to walk away from this because they're not going to give me the money I want for it. Yeah, who knows what the specifics are? It's yeah. hard to tell. I guess it's tough. I guess if you're like so many millions of dollars apart that you're just not going to be able to make your vision, then I, I guess I get it. Yeah, well, he probably had his producer or somebody telling him how much it needed to be. Yeah. And then the studio's coming in somewhere completely different. And then a lot of times the irony in those situations is that the ultimate budget ends up being what they wanted or something. You know, it, right, right. after all the time yeah. that goes by and different changes and whatnot, who knows? Now, it's hard for me to get a gauge of where Sam Raimi was at his, in his career at this point. Obviously, pre-Spider-Man. Yeah. Was he a bankable studio name? I would say not really. I wouldn't think. He's still probably more of like an indie world type right. director. Because I think in those days, it took a little bit longer before you were sucked into the huge stuff. Whereas right. now you do one movie and Marvel or Disney or somebody's knocking on your door. You're directing a Star Wars movie or yeah. something. They're just desperate for new talent. Up to that point, he did The Evil Dead. He did Crime Wave, which is a movie he collaborated on with the Coens, which was a disaster because mm. of the studio. Evil Dead 2, Dark Man, Army right. of Darkness. He was coming off of The Quick and the Dead. Oh, yeah, that's that Western. right. Yeah. But that's really that's... one of the only super... That was a, an attempt at being a big Hollywood movie, right? Kind of, yeah. It had Sharon Stone and... Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Yeah, but Come he on. wasn't Leonardo DiCaprio yet. He was still pretty young. Well, he always was to me. He actually directed for Love of the Game, which is very bizarre, and he did wow. that after this movie. I did not know he directed that movie. Yeah, this is really the one time he really worked in this genre. The Gift is another kind of close to it, yeah. but not really. Another weird one that I would, like, if you're just listing off movies, I would not be like, oh, yeah, The Gift. Sam Raimi's The Gift. Ben really taught me how to write a script. I don't know that he ever explicitly said it, but by imagining the script as a verbal description of a movie, the movie that I wanted the book to be, that's very simple, but it really was the key to everything for me, just imagining what was on the page. I was shortchanging the visual in my script, concentrating on dialogue, which I imagine is a very common first-time screenwriter's mistake, and to suddenly just do it visually opened up everything for me. Smith on writing the screenplay. So... It's interesting. I don't think Ben Stiller's name really is anywhere on this movie, but he definitely had his fingerprints on it and helped mold it. Yeah. 
Sounds like his influence was there. Which is weird because Stiller became such a big star, a comedic acting star, that it's kind of hard to remember that he started out as an indie filmmaker. Yeah, that is weird. In addition to everything else he was doing, but by this point he had already been directing stuff, which I don't think a lot of people who associate him with Meet the Parents and all these different comedies were necessarily thinking about. Yeah. Initially, the script was 256 pages long, which would equal out to be about a four and a half hour film. They had to obviously trim that way down. I think the novel is only like 300 pages, so he was almost yeah. he was like, "Nothing gets cut. I'm including <laughs> everything." In 1995, John Dahl comes on to direct with Nicolas Cage to star. John Dahl directed Red Rock West, which Nicolas Cage was in, but also The Last Seduction, Rounders. Okay. Joyride. Yeah. But the original studio, Savoy, after some box office failures, decides to retreat from movies and subsequently Dahl and Cage depart. Next up, Paramount buys the rights to the film from them. John Borman is to direct. He directed Deliverance, Excalibur, The Emerald Forest, things of that nature. I don't think he really had hits into the 90s, though, so this would have been Maybe interesting. Maybe an attempt at a comeback. He casts Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton, who were reuniting a few years after the film One False Move, although I don't right. know that they actually they... had much together in that film. That's true. But they're both in it. Yeah. I did just watch that recently, too. Yeah, I think we'll probably do that sometime next year. So that's another under-the-radar neo-noir thriller that people can check out. Even though the characters are wildly different, it's sort of feels like a similar world well one of the cool things about this movie and doing it for the podcast is you're reminded of a cool film scene that was going on in the 90s yeah now it's a stretch to associate all of these things with the independent movement that was going on but it's more than just one movement that i'm talking about i'm just talking about what was available to see in the theaters and so this movie you're immediately connecting it to one false move you're also immediately connecting it to Sling Blade, right. which the characters that Billy Bob Thornton plays are somewhat similar, and, and I think that his... Isn't Bob Briscoe or whatever? Brent Briscoe. Brent Briscoe, yeah, also in Sling Blade? I don't remember if he's okay. in that or not. But yeah, a lot of the same people overlapping, and just a lot of cool shit. <laughs> in the prelude to recording this episode, we were going on our usual rants about how everything <laughs> sucks and nothing is cool. It really is like an uplifting time every pre-show to get us hyped up for doing this. Honestly, if a simple plan came out this year, it'd be in strong contention for an easy number one movie of the year. There's just not a lot of cool genre shit anymore. Yeah. Confirmed Brent Briscoe is in Sling Blade as well. Borman worked on the film for a decent amount of time. He does all of the location scouting, the locations that they end up using. I think the studio helped convince Smith that the location of Minnesota would be better. I think in the novel, it actually takes place in Ohio. Mm. But then money problems delayed the film again, and Borman ran into scheduling conflicts, so then he leaves. Paramount then hires Sam Raimi who saw the film as an opportunity to direct a character-driven story that differed from his earlier works, which were highly stylized or dependent on intricate camera movements. 
Raimi did not have time to scout locations due to studio constraints, so he relied on the previous areas visited during Borman's involvement. This is a change of pace for me, Raimi said, because the film is not about shots, but the performance within the frame. I wanted the camera work to be invisible and just allow the actors to tell this very thrilling story. It became a search for snow to remain consistent. Mm. That's one of the difficulties when you're working with weather. Sometimes the weather changes, and then you haven't filmed everything that you need from this one scene or all these different things, and they wanted to remain consistent. So they end up chasing snow through Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. Rough. They end up having to use a combination of real snow and synthetic snow, and they decided early on that as far as the cinematography goes and the look of the film, they wanted to use gray, somber, overcast skies. And then when it happened to be sunny, they would just CGI it when necessary to conceal the sunny Mm. days Yes, to make it all consistent. And it is a very somber, heavy film. And it feels like that when you watch it. bleak, I'd say. It's a modern-day neo-noir crime thriller. And the biggest takeaway when watching it is, damn, genre is fun. Absolutely. There used to be a lot of things like this, not as much now, but no. that's probably because movies like this sometimes struggled to make their money back. But I honestly think you could probably make movies like this on the cheap. It's not exactly something that you have to invest a ton of money in. Yeah, this doesn't feel that big. It's not an indie movie, but it's also not a blockbuster budget. Well, yeah, but it only made 16.3, which I mentioned, so... No, I know. That's that's tough. That's a tough sell to keep doing stuff like that. But they kinda, you could make something like this and have it scaled back even a bit more and still be cool. I don't really want to necessarily spoil the subject for next week, but I will say that we are working in similar territory. Once again. And rather than run from it, this time I decided to embrace it. So we're really examining human nature and greed and identity and processing these things in a modern world. And this film and the film we're covering next week, I think, really force you to confront a darker side to humanity. I think there's even more of a darkness somehow, maybe next time, but that's only because next week's is more sociopathic in some of its darkness, whereas this is haunting in the sense that we're taking ordinary people who seem decent and otherwise would remain decent, right? but you're dangling that temptation in front of them and how quickly they devolve into greedy, animalistic... And how little the payoff would seem worth it for them. Like they're well, plans. by the time you get to the end, it, no, I know it, it seems like how could this even be worth right. it now? But every time they're like making these plans, the things that they're talking about for their futures, you're like, this doesn't sound much better than the life you have now. Well, yeah, I think that's sort of apparent in that opening narration, which I'll read when we get there, uh-huh. about how you don't realize sometimes how good you actually have it. Right now, that is what's interesting about a simple plan, though, is because there is this classism and class structure as part of what the film ends up being about because when you examine the situations of Jacob and Lou versus Hank yeah they're completely different especially Jacob oh, who totally. doesn't seem to have anything really but Hank ends up being the central character he's the one that 
we're hanging our hat on whether or not he's going to do the right thing or not. And so when you look at his life, you're thinking, is this amount of money really worth sacrificing what you had and being able to sleep at night and look yourself in the mirror? A big part of it, too, even within the construct of we're getting this money and we're going to have a new life, it's always basically from the beginning talked about as almost like a life on the run. We have to leave town and kind of like separate everything and sort of be anonymous for this to even work. Yeah, to be able to spend the money without suspicion. Yeah. You're basically saying that for this amount of money, which when you're split it up three ways, isn't exactly money you can live on for the rest of your life, probably. Mm -hmm. Not three people in the case of Hank. Right. We're going to throw everything away for this. I think that if you were to do a modern remake, you probably would have to make it a little bit more. Yeah. Because it's sort of hard to believe that they're willing to go this far for it. His job at the feed store doesn't seem that bad. Doesn't seem like a lot of customers. <laughs> <laughs> Seems pretty chill. Yeah. You've got a comfortable little two-story, probably the best-looking woman in town for your wife. I would think. Bridget Fonda? Sometimes you got to just learn to be happy with what you got. Come on, Hank. To continue a theme from... Pee-wee's Big Adventure, we have Danny Elfman on the score, who by this point was comfortable doing music scores, even beyond Tim Burton. Wow. yeah, (laughs) He had to be talked into it for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That's right. Quite a career. Yeah. Went on to a huge career. A Simple Plan is a modern, updated take on the Pardoner's Tale from the Canterbury Tales. You know, Chaucer and all that. Mm. I'm sure, Matt, you've read all of them. Uh, Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. The story is basically these friends are going to go kill death to avenge one of their other friends. I don't really get that part of it, but whatever. There's just a a person named Death or something. Or maybe it's actually supposed to be Death. It doesn't even matter because they get distracted because they find money. They find all this money by a tree or something in the woods and then they forget their vengeance pretty quickly. They split up to have someone go back to town for some reason, I can't remember, and then, of course, immediately start plotting against each other and then they all end up dead. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) That's basically the gist of the story. So let's get into A Simple Plan. It's a two-hour movie, so I think there's a decent amount to talk about. There's a lot as far as the story, but to build upon that Sam Raimi quote that I read about the performances, this really is an acting showcase, especially for Billy Bob Thornton, who was nominated. Not really sure what exactly happened to his career. I guess you can really examine that. All you want. He, he seems like a prickly fellow, maybe hard yeah. to deal with, but definitely had quite a run, though. Was one of the great actors for sure. Now he's relegated to being the fifth lead on a Marvel show on Disney Plus or something. Oh, wow. yeah. You know, not really high profile acting stuff now. But when you look at some of the stuff he was working with, and he was writing and directing and stuff too, was a big player in this time period. And he's great in this movie. Oh, totally. As is Paxton, as is Fonda, who is chilling. Yeah, And maybe the darkest, most evil character in a way. Because it's unexpected. It's almost like an unexpected turn. Yeah, there's a simpleness to Hank where you can see him being led in any kind of direction by anybody. Easily manipulated. But with her, it does seem very deliberate. There's a coldness there. Yeah. Well, one of the fun parts to watch throughout the movie is sort of who feels like they're the puppet master at any given time. Because I would say even Jacob has moments of him 
being in control of what's going on, but it keeps moving around. Yeah, and then I think by the end, Jacob becomes the moral center of the film, whereas Hank and Sarah have completely lost themselves and gone over to the point where they're willing to do anything Yes, to make it to the finish line. The first image of the film is a close-up of a crow. Crows will reoccur throughout. Definitely. Crows are a harbinger of death. You refer to multiple crows as a murder of crows. Frightening. Pretty straightforward. We're in snowy, rural Minnesota, farmland, a lot of big open spaces covered in snow. It snows relentlessly throughout the film. Oh, yeah. Actually, we have a big contingent of the listenership in Minnesota. Yeah, we have some listeners out there in the Minnesota, Wisconsin, those areas. We'll try not to make the weather sound too horrible (laughs) through this episode. No, I actually like snow. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of bitter cold, but Same. snow is always fun. Yeah, yeah. I think the film is actually set around the end of December because they do do a New Year's Eve scene. True. So it's end of December into January. I thought this would be a fun one to get to eventually during the winter. I think it was on the schedule at some other point. And it is fitting. Wanted to get it in here. When I was a kid, I remember my father telling me what he thought that it took for a man to be happy. Simple things, really. A wife he loves, a decent job, friends and neighbors who like and respect him. And for a while there, without hardly even realizing it, I had all that. I was a happy man. That's the opening narration from Hank Mitchell, played by Bill Paxton. And those words hang heavy over the rest of the film, as if he didn't realize until it was far too late what exactly he had. Yeah, they're hanging heavy over me right now. Hank and his pregnant wife, Sarah, played by Bridget Fonda, live in Wright County, Minnesota. Hank works as a bookkeeper at a feed mill, and Sarah is a librarian. Their lives are good, as Hank himself says, presumably with the blessing of hindsight, though. He was a happy man. But is good, quote-unquote, enough? Could life be better? Could life be great? What do you think the combined income... 1998 these two professions combined yeah so the household income six thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> probably forty thousand yeah. dollars yeah that's probably right everything was a lot cheaper yeah and there's probably inheritance sure different things of that nature going on that help people along uh, the way midwest family money yeah i'm sure that the mortgage they're paying on that house is probably less than I pay for this studio apartment. (laughs) I'm not joking either. Well, luckily, they don't have to take care of that farm anymore. It's clear by what happens later in the film, the questions that I just asked exist at all times, just underneath the tranquil, seemingly happy, placid surface, which is sort of depressing. And there's some big moments, especially between Hank and Sarah, where... You're like, oh, so this is how you felt along? <laughs> oh, great. Our life is a big lie. Yeah. It's disturbing, but not all that inconceivable how quickly honest, decent people can be corrupted. And that's the thing that I kept thinking about throughout the film. It seems wild and crazy, and they definitely go in some dark, violent territory, but I kind of bought it. I believed it that this could happen to normal people pretty quickly. Totally, I think there's been enough real-life examples where we know that 
people will become like this i know well even like all the true crime stuff about husbands either murdering their wives or putting a hit out on them or something because they got involved with somebody else or maybe there was money online it is just like shocking how quick people can just go down this path hank is one of the town's few college graduates an honor that sometimes feels more like an albatross around his neck for Sarah, some other actresses in consideration, Laura Dern, oh, the late, great Anne Heche, Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman, also in the mix. I love a Bridget Fonda performance. I know that we're both big fans because of Jackie Brown, but sure. it's always nice to see her. This is something where you start off the movie and it feels like she's just the actress that's playing the wife, but this ends up being like a much juicier role than that. Yeah, although it was trimmed from the novel, but yeah, she still becomes like a big factor. Hank and his older brother Jacob, played by Billy Bob Thornton, who has some learning difficulties. They visit their parents' gravestone with Jacob's friend Lou, played by Brent Briscoe, tagging along. And so, as I was alluding to earlier, I think that the film touches on different elements, social class, financial security. Compare Hank's level of comfort with his modest two-story home and his pretty and supportive wife versus the life of his brother, or even Lou's life, who does have a wife, but it seems like a grim scene over there. <laughs> There's some weirdness. We will be confronted with the concept of Hank and Sarah desiring more, but what about Jacob and Lou? To them, Hank's life must seem like a dream already, one that's a million miles from their own. Something they'll bring up at various points of the movie on the way back from the cemetery a fox that recently raided a hen house runs onto the street causing jacob to slide off of the road and into a tree not sure if it's supposed to be the same fox that causes a series of events later but no i think it is and you think it's supposed to be the same playing a major part in setting off events in this film yeah this fox has continuously been doing it it did it in the opening credits right it's doing it now which causes this accident and causes what happens next to happen and then yeah it will lead to the escalation right (laughs) the things where they reach a point of no return Uh uh-huh seeking vengeance jacob hank and lou along with jacob's dog mary beth pursue the fox into the woods above them a bunch of crows they even comment on the crows about how they essentially just hang around and wait for something to die. Uh-huh. <laughs> the dynamic of these three is interesting, especially before they find the money, when you're trying to figure it all out. Because Jacob is actually older, but he's simple-minded, and his friend Lou seems like a low-life loser. I think that's fair. But <laughs> it's pointed out that he's proud of being the town drunk. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down yeah. when we get there. But they... Definitely team up a little bit to goof on Hank. And Hank almost seems, I don't want to say overwhelmed by it or anything like that, but he doesn't really have much pushback. And I think that it's it's interesting they're busting Hank's balls here. And one of the things you're definitely supposed to pick up on is the fact that Lou does not like the fact that Hank used the word insinuating. <laughs> but not back only that up. he brings it up, but the fact that he's referencing something that happened weeks ago, and he's yeah. still thinking about it. <laughs> he just doesn't like the fact that Hank used a word like insinuating. 
<laughs> in casual conversation. Pretentious. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I mean about this albatross around his neck. Although there's much more to it later too, where I think that that plays into why Hank is willing to sacrifice everything for this money because he has this college degree and he's working at a feed store and it, uh-huh. he hasn't really done that much with it. He hasn't reached what he felt like was his full potential. I get it. He thinks that he's so far above these guys and the reality is he's only slightly above them. <laughs> right, to him. Yeah. That's what he thinks. Right. But to them, his life might might as well be a million miles. Oh, especially yeah. Especially when we learn. When you see Jacob's where he lives... When he does that whole scene about the girl that oh, hated him. Carrie Richards. <laughs> Just that whole thing. Brutal. Yeah, we'll get there. Yep. The trio stumble upon a crashed airplane in the woods. Hank looks inside and discovers a dead pilot. Although, at first, moving around. Yeah, well, there's a crow yeah. pecking at its face. His face. <laughs> Rough. There's also a gym bag containing $4.4 million in $100 bills. Now, one of the things I was asking myself while watching the film is... How long would it take to count this? How long had the plane been there? I yeah. don't care about how long it takes to count it. And it seems pretty well intact for a crash, to be honest. Yeah, it, there probably would be a little bit more damaged, especially if the pilot was dead on impact. And, and I kind of thought these little planes, like if there's an accident, an accident, if, they're, if they crash, I thought they kind of like get pretty fucked up. Yeah, I'm sure that some don't, but the fact yeah. that it's in the woods, you would think it hit a bunch of trees and right. shit. But whatever. Sure, we're okay with it. I'm more concerned with how long that this crash happened, because there's a lot of snow on the plane, concealing it from sight at first. In fact, the only reason they find it is because Lou makes a snowball as if he's going to throw it at Hank's face, because they're kind of bullying him in a weird way. Right. And then he throws it off into the distance, it hits the plane knocking some of the snow off, revealing it. Yeah. The pilot is dead. He isn't super rotted, but it's freezing cold out, so the body would be more preserved, but he is at the point where a crow is pecking at his face. So initially, I was thinking, okay, has this plane been here weeks? Days? I don't know. It's actually hard to get a gauge of time throughout this movie in general. I feel like a lot of time passes... But for someone to show up, for anyone to show up looking for this plane, it seems like it takes a long time. Now, maybe that's a deliberate move. Well, when you find out the story, yeah, there wouldn't be any record of where this plane was or where it disappeared. So I guess there's probably a lot of towns to check sure. from yeah. one place to <laughs> the next. That's true, yeah. Because who knows where it crashed. Right. But yeah, I know. That's what I mean. Because, well, we'll we're sure, sort sure. of getting yeah, ahead of ourselves. But like when he too. references that he heard a plane and all that shit, you're like... Yeah, but what if it had crashed weeks ago? It's sort of hard to tell when I know. it crashed. And right. I don't know. The time frame of the crash is sort of hard to piece together, and they never really reveal it, so sure. who knows. Hank talks of turning the money in to the authorities, but Lou and Jacob resist and then start persuading him not to. As you said right at the beginning, it's the American dream in a goddamn gym bag. Which I feel like does sort of summarize the movie, the feel of this movie. It also summarizes what the movie's about, whether or not you believe that. Because Hank's initial response is, no, you work for the American dream, but it's part of this front he puts up that is very quickly eroded Uh and gone. (laughs) Because he's willing to buy in eventually. Because the morality of Hank melts away pretty quickly. 
And it's entirely possible that if he was alone when he found the money, he would have done the right thing. But who knows? We don't know what he would have done. Right. And it certainly doesn't take much to sway him in the other direction. No. So you're not sure if he's just saying what he thinks you should say because there's other people there. And if he was by himself, he would make the snap decision to keep the money. I yeah. don't know. But I'll be honest, it doesn't take much. I know that a lot spirals from this situation and they're not making the most rational decisions here. But isn't the move just to like take a couple bundles each, you know, and then report it to the police? I would take a couple bundles each and not report it. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the move. But once you open the door to greed... I know, it's hard. You're not 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 taking the whole thing. Right. (laughs) Plus, and this is a recurring theme throughout the movie, it doesn't seem like Hank trusts Jacob and Lou and that he's quite possibly correct in not trusting them, although for completely different reasons for each of them. But Mm -hmm. he probably knows that deep down all along. (laughs) So if they're talking about splitting up the money but only taking a few bundles... He has to know that Lou's coming back out there. Oh, true, it, yeah. And that Lou is probably going to fuck it all up eventually. That's right. Hank then proposes that he keep the money at his house until the end of winter when the snow will melt and the plane will be found. At that point, if no one talks about missing money, they will divvy up the shares and move away. So he's working under the assumption that this is dirty money and that when the plane is found, there will be no mention of it because it's either involved with drugs or some other criminal activity. And it's not going to be yeah, tracked or hunted down in that sense. I think that's a fair assumption whenever you find a bag of $4.4 million in cash. Yeah. And it's not all over the news that it's right. missing yeah. right away or anything like that. This is the only way that Hank will do it, he says. Because clearly, like I said, he doesn't trust Jacob and Lou. So he wants to be responsible for the money and thus prevent them from doing anything insane <laughs> or messing it all up. And he also wants to have that option, which he mentions several times, that he will burn the money. He threatens to burn the money if necessary, and he needs to be the one to dictate the terms. I guess just to keep things moving in the right direction, which is we get the money, Lou and Jacob go along with this. Jacob, I think, would go along with whatever his brother says, but Lou seems to be pushing in the other direction a little bit more. I am surprised that there's not more of a fight from Lou early on. Because he's afraid that Hank will just tell the authorities yeah yeah. so if hank is now talking about keeping the money he's thinking okay let's just get to that step first and then later when i run out of money because i've been spending like i already have this money i'll just show up and ask for it which is what he does right so this is the simple plan the titular simple plan Uh uh-huh let's just take it if shit hits the fan if people come looking for it i'll burn it that way we'll never be implicated with it right but if no one ever mentions it then we'll split it up and we'll quietly move away. That way we can spend it. What is Jacob going to do, though? When you split up 4.4 million and you come out to 1. whatever million, I feel like you could live there and just always have that comfortably in your back pocket. That way, right. our newborn daughter needs new shoes. We don't have to worry about it. I don't think you actually have to move away. It's not well, like $100 million or something. I think that Hank would do that. But I think that Hank knows that Lou is not going to do that. Right. <laughs> Lou yeah. is going to no job. No like the guys after the fucking deal in Goodfellas, yeah. you can have like a fur coat a and a Corvette. Corvette, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can barely haul the cash back to the truck before things start to go wrong. The local sheriff, Carl, played by Chelsea Ross, drives by and pulls over to talk, seeing if they're okay. 
Hank's going to handle it himself after they've concealed the money, but Jacob, at Lou's suggestion, attempts to throw off future suspicion by mentioning hearing a plane nearby. Lou's idea amounts to the guys who mentioned the possibility of a crash would never be the ones who stole the money from the plane, which is a terrible assumption. And really, Hank's seething about it immediately. (laughs) Yeah, I think Hank is always baffled by what Jacob does, which is weird because you would think after 40 years or however long of having him as a brother, you might be used to it. Yeah, It's a terrible idea by Lou because (laughs) as far as Carl knows, there isn't even a plane crash. Right, yeah. And let's say that no one discovered the crash until spring. I doubt that Carl's going to remember that they were pulled over on the side of the road on some snowy day months earlier because who knows when the plane even would have crashed. Right. It could have been a, a big window of days and weeks and months, especially when it's some untracked, unknown, single-engine, small plane, obviously involved in some illegal business. Right. They're not going to be like, oh, it definitely crashed on this day, so the plane was there. And hey, you know what? I remember seeing some tracks into the... You know, I know. They're not going to piece all that together. So by mentioning the crash at all... It's an insane decision by Lou to put this in Jacob's ear. <laughs> Because Lou is an idiot. I know. <laughs> but we do get a little bit of a window into his home life when they drop him off. He's married to Nancy, played by Becky Ann Baker. Hmm. The mom from Freaks and Geeks? Yeah. Yeah. Seems like they have a decent-sized house, although it seems a little run down and old, and who knows what's going on. Later we learn Lou's been out of work for a long time. Uh-huh. Doesn't seem like a great place. But the plan is to keep the money a secret from everyone, even from their wives. However, as soon as Hank gets home, he tells Sarah. First, he tries framing it as a hypothetical situation. Well, he does constantly seem to need reassurance from her. Yeah, and when she's immediately like, well, I would turn it in, and I wouldn't take it. and he, So he starts adding all of these qualifications <laughs> to the story. <laughs> well, wait, hold on. What, I, you didn't let me finish. What, about- what if it's drug money? <laughs> but even when all of that doesn't work, he just shows her the cash, and... It's a great shot of him dumping all of that money under the table and her giant grin, which keeps growing in the background where she can't help herself but smile. Yeah. But Sarah is initially just as Hank was. We don't need the money. She keeps saying it. It's wrong. Yada, yada, yada. But eventually, Sarah falls victim to the temptation too, and that's when she starts scheming. She starts coming up with different ideas. She suggests Hank return some of the money to the plane, 500000 even, to avoid suspicion. She says, basically, no one would walk away from that much money. So that will make it seem as if no one was there and took money out of the plane. Which, again, is sort of like Lou, where you're coming up with how these scenarios. How much I was buying that this made the situation better. If they had left 500000 there as a preemptive move, yeah. then that would have been fine. But Going to back add to the, the scene threat of going back yeah obviously goes horribly wrong and there is definitely a macbeth lady macbeth dynamic oh for sure sarah's transformation is even more startling in a way because it's more drastic it's her plans that ultimately lead to so much death and carnage in the film i know it's as if she instinctually recognizes a weakness in her husband and assumes control of the situation from the shadows the sidelines and i was thinking in a way deep down on a very instinctual human level that it ends up becoming even more 
than the money. The money is, of course, number one. That's why right. you're doing it because you're fantasizing about what you're going to do with the money. But I think underneath that, there's a second level where Sarah and yeah. maybe to a lesser extent, Hank, are right. craving excitement. I Their agree. lives are boring. They both seem to get addicted to the idea of outsmarting everyone else on these Yeah, schemes. because all of a sudden, it's like Game of Thrones, right. where your whole life is about now plotting and scheming. And all yeah. of a sudden, you have this boring nine-to-five life. We see how she's reshelving books at the library, and he's getting into arguments with customers at the feed store and all these different boring things. And then all of a sudden, something very exciting is introduced into your life. Right. And now that's the focal point. That's all you're thinking about all the time. Yeah. I don't want to jump too much ahead, but I think particularly when Sarah's pitching this whole thing that they need to do at Lou's house, this seems out of your way, like too much, where the stakes are at that point. That's true, but... Lou does have something hanging over them right. at that point. Thanks that to Jacob. <laughs> they need to figure out what to do because yeah. Lou is out of control. Yes, he is a wild card. Actually, there's several wild cards. Yeah. That's the thing about finding $4.4 million. You don't want to find it with two wild cards yeah. <laughs> that you can't control. Right. Sarah also realizes that Jacob is a potential liability and insists Hank go alone to return the 500000 to the plane, but Hank decides to include Jacob anyway. He convinces Jacob under the guise of moving the pilot back to the way he was. It doesn't seem as if he tells Lou and Jacob that he's subtracting 500k from the total. So I don't know how that would factor in later when they're eventually divvying up this money. That is true. Half a mil is not insignificant when three people were already counting on a certain amount. Yeah, I would assume that Lou would insist that all 500k comes out of Hank's money. Yeah. If everything went well, I'm saying. Right. <laughs> Hank walks through the woods to the plane while Jacob waits at the car, pretending to change the tire. Elderly farmer Dwight Stevenson approaches Jacob on a snowmobile and asks him if he's seen the fox run by with a chicken. Oh, Jacob just complete inability to keep his cool. <laughs> yeah, he panics. And then he panics even more when Dwight sees Hank emerging from the woods, assuming their cover is blown. And so he bludgeons Dwight with a tire iron. A quick decision. Escalating things officially to a point of no return. Because now you've involved another crime, a violent crime, and another person. So now there's no turning back anymore. Right. Hank believes Dwight to be dead. His fast-thinking plan is to split up and then meet later while he moves the body and tries to make it look like an accident. Jacob is freaking out but he goes along with it. However, when Jacob drives off and Hank is attempting to move the body on the snowmobile, Dwight regains consciousness, so Hank suffocates him. Yeah, doubling down. Well, at that point, I guess. I don't know what else In for a do. penny, in for a pound. Yeah. He then uses the snowmobile to drive the body off a bridge, making the murder resemble an accidental death. So, on the surface, maybe you're thinking he suffocates Dwight because he's trying to protect his brother. Because Dwight is saying, call the police, he attacked me. But no, obviously. He's worried that if Jacob gets busted for this, that the whole plan is going to come crumbling down. Well, they're going to start asking some questions. What were you doing out there? Well, I don't think Jacob could stand up to questioning. I think the whole thing right, would yeah. come out. Right. And so, yeah, he's protecting himself, and he's protecting the money, and he still wants the money, and he still wants to come out 
at the end of this with the money, and so now they've murdered somebody. It's a huge escalation. Ultimately, Hank's decision to go over the edge, not Jacob's. Hank is still in charge. Oh, yeah. Hank makes this decision, and then he is the one that ultimately kills Dwight. Because you go from assault with a deadly weapon to murder. Uh Uh-huh. A leap. Because Jacob has this moral center that always gets annoying at the wrong times, he has to end up telling Jacob how Dwight really died in order to get Jacob to not turn himself in. That's right. Which, of course, introduces a new threat to Hank. Yeah, because Jacob is willing to protect his brother, but he doesn't want to do it to protect himself. Right. So he wants to turn himself in, but then Hank has to reveal what really happened, which was he strangled him. And now we've gone from a respected, honest, hardworking, normal, decent man to a murderer to peeling back the layers and finding the darkness within a man's heart. And you are, of course, reminded of the end of Fargo with Marge. Right. Saying, oh, just for a little bit of money. Although the money seems a little bit more in this, I think. I think so. I can't remember how much those guys were going to get, but whatever. I don't think it was 4.4 million. The introduction of the money and all of this stuff that's gone along with it has essentially poisoned Hank and Sarah's marriage, but not in the fact that they're fighting or they hate each other or they're getting divorced, but they are essentially enabling each other to be these people. Right. To be these terrible people, and they're losing all humanity. And they do seem, you know, we've talked about their obsession with it, but they almost seem drunk in these states when they're talking about these plans. Yeah, it's overtaken their lives, and... I think the movie's suggesting how easy it can be to lose yourself when you don't appreciate what you actually have. And what we find out is, by the end of the film, that neither of them did appreciate what they already had. Correct. It really wasn't enough for either of them. Bill Paxton's father, John, makes a brief appearance here as Mr. Schmidt. Okay. The guy who's like, are you telling me there were five weeks last month? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That he's arguing with. I guess... He got the part not because he's Bill's dad. Bill didn't even know he was going to be in the film. He actually just wrote a letter to Sam Raimi, and he ends up being in a lot of Sam Raimi's films, including little parts in Spider-Man and all that shit. Oh, that's great. Yeah, five Mondays in the month. (laughs) Well, I mean, suppose you stay. I mean, where are you going to tell people you got the money? That's easy. We just tell people that... Sarah inherited some money. It's easy. You know, nobody around here knows anything about her family. You guys could have just bought the farm, you know, and and then uh, uh, left me to run it. It's not going to work. I thought this was going to make you happy. Jacob, farming, come on. You don't just buy a farm. You got to work it. You gotta know about machinery and seed. I know that. No, you don't. Fertilizers, pesticides, herbicide, drainage, irrigation, the weather. Come on, you don't know about any of that stuff. You're gonna end up just like Dad. Why do you think he ended up like that? I'll tell you how he ended up like that. He had two mortgages riding on the place. He couldn't make the payments. Where do you think the money went? He was a bad businessman. Where do you think the money went? No, you think he spent it all on the farm? I'll tell you exactly where the money went four years of college, bud. Yeah, didn't you ever think about how he paid for that? Didn't that ever occur to you? No, my tuition was... Listen, I'm supposed to get the farm. What do I get? I'm supposed to get the farm. 
Take him. You got the you got the whole world. You can. I don't want to hear that. You can go anywhere you want. This is what I want. This is this is where I want to be. It's my home, Hank. Turns out that Jacob wants to buy the family farm back with his cut of the money. Which is very sweet, but also something going against the plan. Right. The farmhouse is in disrepair and neglect. It's a setting they use a couple of times in the film. It's Yeah, they go out there to meet to have like private conversations. There's no windows or anything. It seems like you'd almost have to tear it down probably because of the weather getting into the house and all that stuff. I'm sure the bank owns it, which seems to be the implication. Jacob can't fathom splitting up from everyone and leaving town, which makes sense as you asked that question earlier. What is he going to do? Right. Who knows? But in their argument about what went wrong and what happened in their lives with their family... This is the first time that Jacob reveals that he might know a little bit more about the truth than Hank has ever let himself see, which is, in this case, the truth about Hank's tuition money and how that's what cost their father the farm. They mm, yeah. mortgaged the farm a second time or something like that, and it all blew up in their face, and somehow... Hank was oblivious to this knowledge, but... Yeah, I guess this should be an eye-opening moment for Hank that maybe he's not that far above Jacob in the awareness department. Well, yeah, this happens two times in the film. The second time is even more major as uh-huh. far as the, the the knowledge, but both times he sort of reacts in a way which allows you to understand why he has not processed this information or believed right. it to be true. Because... He doesn't really react in a big way, especially to the second news, which I think is even bigger. You can kind of tell that he has built up this wall. And I think that this information here about the truth about the tuition money and how this basically sent the family to ruin, more or less, it potentially feeds right into the nagging feeling in the back of Hank's mind that's been there all along. And that definitely adds to probably the own self pressure to do more than what he has done with his life exactly his parents sacrificed literally everything so you could work at this fucking feed store (laughs) and now he works at a fucking feed store with his degree yeah and this money this found money serves as an answer to a question he was always too scared to ask should there be more to my life than there is at least in his mind right i think the moral of the movie is that this thinking is dangerous and poisonous and happiness is more important than achieving some sort of status i look at this movie as someone who lives a simple life loves bridget fonda okay and think i don't know what more you could possibly want yeah you seem pretty comfortable everyone in town likes you right you have a wife who seems pretty great yeah being the richest dude from wright county probably doesn't do much for you well if you earn the money in some kind of way, then good for you, but sure. there's no easy solutions like finding a bag of money. There's no, there's always going to be some kind of strings attached, obviously. Right. 
While searching newspaper clippings at the library, Sarah discovers that the money was a ransom for a kidnapped heiress from Michigan who was abducted by two brothers, Stephen and Vernon Bukowski. Sarah surmises that the dead pilot was one of the brothers as the ransom was delivered, but the whereabouts of the two brothers officially remains unknown. So she pieces together where this money came from, basically because the amount matches. Yeah. A lot of long days at that library and a wealth of resources. I did think it was odd, though, that she said one of those articles was sent over from the other branch. And I was like, okay, isn't that leaving a trail of people then that know that you were interested in this? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You're leading a lot of clues that you might have been involved somehow in something. I I think she talks about it at some point with Hank specifically. You can't discount the fact that nobody thinks you're going to do this. No, I know. Yeah, that's one of the great parts, is that no one would believe it. And I do do think that often throughout the film, Hank does cash in on the reputation he's cultivated in town. Right. Because there are a few parts in the film where you do have to suspend disbelief a little bit, because it's so easy for him to talk his way out of things, especially whenever it's multiple things. But I know. I think that's playing into the small town mentality of decent people, where it's so far from everyone's mind that he would be involved in a negative way in something yeah. like this that that wouldn't even occur to these people in a million years. Right. And that's what they're banking on in their very cynical way now yes. that they've turned into these people. <laughs> One night, a drunken Lou arrives at Hank's house and demands his share of the money because he is broke and has spent recklessly since the discovery When Hank refuses his request, Lou threatens to go to the cops, having learned from Jacob the truth about Dwight's murder. Ugh. Yeah. Jacob. In a way, though, it's almost sweet that Jacob is so naive. I know. He thinks they're a team, the three of them together. Right. He says that later. I know. He's baffled by why there would be divisions. What do you mean? There's not sides. It's not versus. It's us three. And he trusts Lou. As if Lou is a good person, but it's pretty clear that Lou is a shitbag loser. Uh Hank lies to Lou, telling him that the money is not inside the house and is a day's drive away. He also gives him $40 to appease him. He tries to calm him down by reminding him that they are all in this together. I do feel like that part is insulting. Even for Lou, it's like... $40? Yeah. But I think that's also an indication of what kind of people we were dealing with. The people that would have... $40 stashed away as if that's going to be like some big thing. That could already be maybe for the little baby's Christmas presents for the next year. You think this is going to let me keep my truck? But it's clear from this interaction that Lou is going to be a problem. Oh, yeah. He's already asking for the money. We're months away from whenever this plan was going to go into effect. And he's already bringing threats into the mix. Yeah. Well, now he has this information. He now knows too much, thanks to Jacob, and it's apparent that he doesn't want to stick to the plan, the simple plan. Hank and Lou, two sides now. Sarah gives birth to a daughter named Amanda. Jacob brings a gift, a childhood teddy bear. But Hank confronts him about telling Lou about Dwight. Jacob, just a limitless amount of naivete. Uh Meanwhile, and this is one of my favorite scenes because it's so dark and the level that they've sunk into so quickly is so remarkable to me. Meanwhile, while she's breastfeeding her newborn infant, possibly for the first time, uh-huh. Sarah advises Hank of a new plan. Yeah. 
She's thinking about the money and scheming while breastfeeding her newborn baby. I know. It reminds me of that part in Spring Breakers when Gucci Mane is just holding the baby. (laughs) It didn't remind me of that at all, but I'm glad you brought it up because it is funny. My baby got to (laughs) eat. Meanwhile, they're like in the giant mansion. (laughs) She wants him to frame Lou for Dwight's murder by getting Lou drunk and tricking him into falsely confessing to the killing and recording the confession. Now, I have to admit, when she describes this plan, you're thinking, this is insane. I know. I don't even understand what you mean. And then when you watch it, you're kind of like, oh, wow, that was actually kind of believable. Yeah. They do pull it off in a way where you buy it. The plan sounds ridiculous when she's saying it. And it doesn't seem like it would work. And it's all not to actually get a true confession out of Lou. It's just to trick him into thinking that he's confessed to it, really. It's all just to get leverage back is the way. Yeah, because they know Lou is Uh simple-minded, too. And that if he's on tape saying he killed Dwight, then he'll think that that's enough to at least get him to shut up. Yeah. Sarah is continuing to pull the strings at all times, and it it is great that the movie very subtly goes in that direction. As you said, yeah. you think, okay, this is a three-man movie, three right. leads. They find the money. She's the token wife, right. but not really. It doesn't really become that. She becomes a much bigger player. Yeah, and then I think leading into the lose house scene, which is probably the best scene in the whole movie, or at least in my opinion, I feel like Jacob kind of has a little bit of a moment here where Hank is really counting on him to follow the plan. And Jacob is almost going to go with his own plan because he still wants the team, the team dynamic. But he, of course, eventually goes with his brother. Yeah, Jacob is definitely reluctant to go through with it. I do like when Hank loses his patience and he just says, do you get what's happening here? (laughs) (laughs) And then in order to make this happen to grease the wheels a little bit he starts to dangle the farm idea right in front of jacob being like yes i'll help you get this farm and this will be something that will actually happen yeah meanwhile we know that hank doesn't really believe that right so they want to ask lou out to drink under the pretense of celebrating splitting the money the idea will be first the bar and then back to lou's house so The centerpiece of this movie, and as indicated by the Academy Award nomination, is the performance of Billy Bob Thornton. I think there's a quiet depth to Thornton's performance as Jacob. On the surface, he's merely a simpleton, jobless, directionless, and losing the battle to alcoholism. But he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders... Jacob knows things. He knows the painful family secrets that Hank refuses to. Their father lost the farm paying for Hank to go to college, and that his death was a suicide, not an accident, which has yet to be revealed to Hank. But Jacob's a devoted brother, and he will prove that time and time again, saving Hank's life several times. Oh, yeah. And unlike Lou or even Hank, his heart is never greedy. His dreams and desires remain modest, believing the money will bring him what his brother already has. A wife? Yep. A family? A future? Just a few simple things. Jacob is painfully nostalgic, longing for a past he idealizes while remaining scared of the present. Oh boy, I wish I didn't relate to the Jacob character so much. And he is ultimately a truly 
tragic figure. Yep. It's a weird dichotomy. On the one hand, he knows the dark truth about his family and what happened to his father and everything that came from that. But at, at the same time, he idealizes that past. Right. Which, by all indications, probably wasn't that great. Nope. But the idea of his dad and his uncle drinking on the porch, that's a good time to him. And who knows how many times that actually happened. Right. But it may have happened once or twice. It's a specific he, memory. It froze in his mind as some great thing to aspire to. But I think it all boils down to he's very lonely. Yes. And he's very afraid of the future because his brother is having a child. His brother is now talking about splitting up and going their separate ways with this money. And that's just not jiving with what Jacob wants. Right. He wants to sit beers late at night on the porch with his brother, have get-togethers with families. Or drink at the local pub with Lou, making jokes. Well, I think that's what he's already doing. Yeah, yeah. pretty grim. I think he wants to continue that, though. So they go out to this bar. Lou, really a tough guy to be around in public. Oh. Getting into fights, just loud. He's like, sexual assault. Yeah. Like, what are you doing, dude? I know. I guess what I'm trying to say is, well, maybe I misjudged you, Hank. Because, I mean, you're a bit more, I don't know, let's, let's say serious than a guy like me. And, you, you know, well, maybe sometimes you can come across... Like you sort of got a stick up your ass. I, I mean, to to someone who doesn't really know you, to to someone who who can't get beneath that first impression. And, and okay, okay, maybe, maybe sometimes well, I can come off a little bit like an asshole. I mean, no, come on. Yeah, no, 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 no. I know what I'm talking about. Well, fuck it. It's all in the past, right? What do you say? Come on. Sounds good to me. Hell yes. Live and let live. Live and let live. Jacob and Hank bring a shit-faced Lou back to his house, and Sarah's plan actually works. Hank manages to record a false confession implicating Lou and Dwight's murder, but Jacob remains dismayed at betraying his friend. As I was saying, it's actually very believable how it ends up playing out. Uh-huh. As we were saying, when Sarah's describing the plan, you're thinking, what? How would you... What? 
And then it turns into this brilliant ruse where uh-huh. it seems insane that Jacob is this good of an actor. I know. And so you're like, how much is Jacob aware of what he's doing? Well, at some point he turns a corner too because he is reluctant to do this for a long time. And you think that he's giving a big fuck you. Right. To Hank. To Hank, but that's what plays into it. Because Hank is falling for it. Is he, though? Or is well, this all part of the oh, ruse? You think that's what that, I don't know. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I know. I, I know what you're saying, that I he takes it upon certain, himself, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I thought at a certain point, Hank's like, oh, okay, we're in it now. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Because that's implying that Jacob is smart enough to have come up with this whole thing himself and not be just following instructions on how to do it. I don't know. They don't hmm. really tell you. Right. But yeah, it does seem like he's playing into that attitude that Lou had for Hank before they found the plane. Right. Which is like, you used the word insinuating, you fucking asshole, fake punching him in the face. Yeah. Hank ducks down or whatever. You know, like bullying him a little bit. And that's what convinces Lou to play along with this game of pretending as oh, if he's he going to go to confess <laughs> where they mock everything he does. They yeah. mock the way he runs. They mock his shoes. They mock his manhood, whatever. And so Lou, of course, is eager to play into that game. After they record him and, and Lou is furious and all this shit's playing out and they're really having a, a, a big confrontation now in, in Lou's living room. It's a pretty brutal assessment from Hank. You're proud when people call you the town drunk. <laughs> We've all known some Lou's in our lives. Some of us do podcasts with them. Yeah, I was going to say one sitting in this room right now. <laughs> Lou grows enraged when he realizes that Hank and Jacob have conspired against him, and he pulls a shotgun on Hank. Jacob runs and gets his hunting rifle from the truck, and after a tense standoff where it seems clear that Lou intends to shoot Hank in order to get the tape back. Yeah. Do you think there's like a little extra added anger here from Lou that he was sort of tricked i feel like that's adding to his rage here what do you mean i think he's, i think that is why he's mad is that he was tricked adding what, what, oh well i, I was th- thinking that you're just supposed to take it that he really is needing to get this tape back oh yeah it's a combination but yeah, okay, yeah yeah the fact that he was tricked is infuriating it to right. him because jacob makes the comment about where he kind of lets it slip about the thing about the sides and who's on what side and everything yes. and it does seem like exactly what it is, which is when the one person's not around, the other two are talking about them. Right, that, kind that of reveal. Thing. So yeah, Jacob kills Lou after this tense standoff. Hank then tries to pacify Lou's wife, Nancy, claiming self-defense, but Nancy gets a revolver and shoots at Hank, who then kills her with Lou's shotgun. So now they have two more bodies. Hank then stages the scene to make it look like Lou shot Nancy and then was aiming at him. And that's when, theoretically, Jacob would have intervened. Put the gun no, down! Shut up! Please, Lou! Shut up! Come on, man. Lou, please, don't do that! Do you think he's your friend, husband? What you Lou, say? put it down! He doesn't give a fuck about you! Do you? Come on, let's all settle down. We're talking to him. Come on, Jesus! That was an insinuation! Lou, for God's sakes. Put the gun down, baby! Lou! This, this is the real thing. Oh, no. No, no, don't do it. Put it down. Ah! Oh, my God. 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 Oh, my
please stay out here and talk to me. Don't, don't. Tell me what's going on, Hank. It's okay, Nancy. Call 911. Call them. Call the cops. Call 911. Call 911 right now. Right now, call them. We have to decide what we're going to say. What? You saw what happened. What? It was an accident. What? It was an accident. You fucking killed him. You he got drunk. You went crazy. You it was an accident. You killed him for the money. No, nobody you killed him for the for money. The you can have your share. You can have it. You fucking think I can let you do that money? Just call him. You stingers. Get him. Drop it. It's a little bit hard to figure out exactly what the narrative is and then they piece it together. I would always be terrified that Jacob wasn't going to be able to keep the story straight, but totally. he essentially does. They make it look like a domestic thing where Lou is out of his mind drunk and starts firing his gun around and kills Nancy. And This then... would be a wild scene. Nancy's body just projected through the kitchen, <laughs> just flying. And then I guess in blast. reaction to doing that, he turns the gun on Hank, and then that's when Jacob has to step in. And this is what we were talking about before, about how... Lou is the town drunk and a loser. Hank is a college graduate, well-respected, well-liked, yeah. honest guy. Why would we question what he's saying? And I do think the bar scene helps build a little bit of the belief around what the perceived story is around what happened at the house. Because I feel like you see Lou be the biggest asshole in the bar. Sure, yeah. And it's like basically like, okay, everybody in this town thinks he's a... Well, how many times, though, has right. that even happened? I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hank and Jacob tell the police their version of the story, which is what I just said. Lou got drunk, went nuts, shot Nancy, shot up the house, turned the gun on Hank. Yeah. Jacob kills him out of self-defense. Carl, the local authority. Yep, this all checks out. They successfully avoid arrest and any suspicion, and everybody just moves on. Sorry (laughs) you boys had to deal with this. Yeah. The town, not that broken up about the loss of Lou, (laughs) frankly. Hank's reputation buys him a lot of leeway in the town and he's cashing in on it throughout this entire movie but ultimately his soul is long gone he's got three bodies now in his wake to get this money and i do put it all on hank because jacob is a simpleton jacob would have not done any of this stuff on his own probably yes he hit the guy with the tire iron but that's because he doesn't know what to do and he's panicking right but he would have never been in these situations this is now all on hank Lou's funeral, sort of a grim affair <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I would have thought the ground would be too frozen. I think sometimes they wait to actually bury the bodies, but there is a hole in the ground. Well, they're prepared. Can't really imagine attending a funeral from a situation where a guy killed his wife and then you killed him in self-defense, but you're also at the funeral. It does seem like there would be a conflict of interest there. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob is having a real hard time with it, though. And, again, he does oddly become the film's moral center. He even asks Hank, do you ever feel evil? It's when they're sitting together in a car, Hank and Jacob, that we learn a little bit more about 
Jacob's history with women Oof. and ultimately what his dreams for the money are uh, the drinking on the porch fantasy and having two families and he doesn't even seem to care that if he had all of this money that that would be the only reason a woman would be with him he just is seeking normalcy yes he just wants these experiences it's very sad totally in a way where you're at that point <laughs> you're just accepting that it wouldn't really be real she would just be interested because of the money but you don't care because you just want to experience it at all yeah i get it and he says that he never kissed a woman look man it's overrated (laughs) 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 nothing but problems yeah but like if sydney sweeney only wanted to date you for money (laughs) somehow i have more money than her (laughs) sweetie that was a that was a whole different deal that was her, her, um, her friends, I pitched in 100 bucks altogether and, and bet her that she wouldn't go study with me for a month. Jesus, Jacob. I, I thought you guys had a, a, a thing. Actually, it was, it was kind of cool. We used to walk around together a lot, you know, take walks, you know. <laughs> and uh, we talked about all kind of cool stuff. I held hands with her one time. We were walking around. And my hand sweated so much, she kind of had to let it go. <laughs> I was nervous, I guess. But it was cool. When the month was over, she... Uh, you know, kind of, she'd say hi to me sometimes on the hallway when I'd see her. She didn't have to do that. That's cool of her. God, Hank, you know, I've, I've never, I've never even kissed a girl before. So, you know, if, if, if being rich will change that, I'm, I'm all for it. I don't care. I just want to feel it, you know. I just want to. I just want to know what people do, you know. I don't care if it's because of the money. Hank, I'm gonna be happy now, right? Sure, you are. We all are. Just when it seems like all the loose ends and obstacles have finally been eliminated and they're free and clear to be with this money. Because when you think about it, even though Jacob is a loose cannon in some ways, Hank definitely has more control over him than he did Lou. So Mm -hmm. now Lou's out of the way. There's no more reason to go back to the plane. So yes, they had to kill Dwight, but they're not going to go back to the plane anymore. Smooth sailing from here. You would think, Uh except now someone comes looking for the money. Because Jacob had mentioned hearing a plane in the woods, Carl asks the brothers to assist an FBI agent named Neil Baxter, played by Gary Cole, in a search for the missing aircraft. And this is where Sarah, who essentially is urging her husband to stay the course, says, No one would believe you'd be capable of the things you've done. Which is a great (laughs) line. line. Yes. Because it does summarize what they've been 
using to their advantage the whole time. Isn't it wild, though, that she's so quick to be like, this guy's not an FBI agent? Yes and no, okay. because she's 100% right. It doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah. None of this story checks out. And the mistake that, I'm going to call him Baxter, even though we know he's one of the Bukowski brothers. Right. The mistake that Baxter makes is that he comes up with a fake story. Yeah. He should have used the real story. Why make up a lie? The real story being that he's a criminal no, brother? No, no. Oh. That the money he's looking for is the ransom money. Okay, But yeah, he's an FBI right. agent. Yes. He makes up an unnecessary lie, and that's what leads to the suspicion, because the money total matches. What is it? What do they say it was from? Like an armored car robbery or something? That does come up. But there's no story right. that doesn't exist. Well, now, I know at one point she's talking about there'd be different denominations. Right. Which would only occur to someone who had actually seen the money. Yeah. But I'm saying that, look, he probably doesn't realize that there's somebody who's going to be investigating whether or not the story matches up anywhere. But he, little does he know that a wife of a person who found the money works at a library. But right. if he just keeps everything as real as possible, then that leaves less possibility for something to get snagged up Mm -hmm. but whatever you're right in the sense that in a normal situation but she's already matched it up to this other story yeah is what i'm saying okay the money total matches and then she knows because of seeing the money right that it isn't money stolen from an armored car definitely so that's the big suspicion yeah is like well wait a minute this guy's story doesn't make sense well hank never would have put this together on his own no no For a college graduate, which I guess in this universe of this movie makes him seem smart, he doesn't really catch on to things very quickly. Right. Hank and Jacob meet with Baxter and Carl at the police station. Baxter asks to be taken out to where they supposedly heard the plane in the morning. Though Hank believes everything he's being told, Sarah is immediately skeptical, feeling like Baxter's story of an armored car robbery doesn't make sense. She believes Baxter is actually the surviving Bukowski brother, just posing as an FBI agent to recover the money for himself. I think another red flag would be one guy by himself, out of nowhere, Uh no news story, no FBI presence in the area. If they really thought a plane had crashed around the area, I think there'd be a whole search party. It's just one guy. It does seem weird, and I get that this is like kind of a detail that you just have to go with for the movie to work, but that Carl... The local authority would accept that this guy's in the FBI with not even any ass. Yeah, we don't see the initial meeting between the two. But yeah, when you find out later that there wasn't even a badge or anything like that involved. Yeah. yeah. I guess you just have to accept Carl's sort of an idiot. too. Again, it plays into that mindset of why would I be suspicious of this? Carl doesn't know that there was a plane with a bunch of money out there that they already found. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So why would this guy show up and pretend to be someone like to him, the whole thing probably wouldn't even occur to him to be a situation to be skeptical of because he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Right. But yeah, the not showing the badge would be weird. Hank and Sarah argue about what to do. They can't be sure of anything pre-internet. The only pick they have of the Bukowski brothers isn't convincing. It does sort of look like Gary Cole, but he has a beard. It looks a little different. It's a weird picture, really. Yeah, and it's a small black and white picture from a newspaper. It's not really anything. Sarah feels that Hank, Carl, and Jacob will be shot out there once the plane is discovered. Hank says he's going to take the money back that very night. Yeah, and this is a wild sequence. 
What do you want? Well, what do you want? Do you want to just walk out there and get shot by no, this guy? I'm, no, I don't want to walk out there and get shot. Well, I'm trying to come up with a plan. A plan? Yeah. Like, like, like the one to take the money back to the plane and we end up killing Stevenson? Or, or maybe the one where we tape Lou and two more people end up dead? Is that the sort of plan you're thinking of? Well, I've got a plan. I'm taking the money back right now, all of it. Hank. No. Hank. I'm going to put it back, and everything's going to be just like it used to be. Fucking money, goddamn it, fucking money. Is that what you think? Is that what you think you want? Walking off to the feed store every morning for the next 30 years, waiting for Tom Butler to retire or die so you can finally get a raise? What about Amanda? You think she's going to like growing up in somebody else's hand-me-down clothes? Playing with some kid's old toys because we can never afford to buy her anything new? Don't say anymore. And me? What about me? Spending the rest of my life eight hours a day with a fake smile plastered on my face, checking out books, and then coming home to cook dinner for you. The same meals over and over again, whatever the week's coupons will allow. Only going out to restaurants for special occasions, birthdays or anniversaries, and even then having to watch what we order, skipping the appetizer, coming home for dessert. You think that's gonna make me happy? No, no, I haven't done Jacob yet. It's back to the welfare office for Jacob, the occasional odd job. But with Lou gone now, just himself and his dog all alone in that filthy apartment, how long do you give him, Hank? Stop it! Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Everything just like it used to be. Well, this is what we've been building to because yep. finally the hard truth is revealed. Sarah has given herself over to oh, the fantasy yeah. of the money. A small town, go nowhere life isn't cutting it for her anymore. That's right. And basically, Hank, you're a loser. She really has some devastating lines in there too. Uh-huh. Plastering on a fake smile, which she says about her job, but you could mean to be anything. Yeah. On our wedding day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only going to restaurants on special occasions. Leaving before dessert, not ordering appetizers. Yeah, still having to watch what we order. Only cooking the same meals over and over, only what the coupons will allow. Oof. Essentially, Sarah now feels like she's seen over to the other side of the fence, and she likes what she sees over there. Oh, yeah. There's no going back now. But again, it's all on the idea of it. It's not like they've actually changed their life through any of this at this point. Yeah, but she can taste it. It's so close. I know. The money is a better life. Everything she's dreamed of. Besides, think about what they've done so far. It would all be for nothing to this point. And, you know, she never really said it before, but this potential to do more that Hank thought he had, she saw that too. She's like, you know, I really thought it was going to be more than the feed store with this college degree. College boy. Well, yeah, but she doesn't say that, though. No, I know, but I'm just I don't want to attribute that as if she actually said it. But, yes, you could imply that. Yeah, I think so. I think that's sort of the implication, but she also has herself to blame. She's her own person. We don't really oh, totally. know very much about her background. At one point... Yeah, I'm guessing librarian wasn't the long-term plan. At one point, Jacob does reference that she's not from the area, which I found to be sort of strange. I don't know where... Maybe she met him in college. Maybe she's a college graduate, too. We don't really know. 
they don't specify that's that. true she's like i hitched myself to your wagon and your wagon went nowhere <laughs> Again, she's playing both sides of it because he's like, well, all right, if you're worried about me getting killed, I'll just burn the money or I'll take it back even because he's so dumb. He doesn't realize that if they find the plane with the money, then, yeah, he would still get killed. Right. He thinks like he can still get out of this somehow by taking the money back. But she's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to get killed, but I also am not ready to give up on this plan. We can still come out of this with the money. In the morning, Sarah calls the local FBI branch and confirms her suspicions to be true. Neil Baxter is really Vernon Bukowski. She then calls Carl's office to warn Hank, who can't really do anything at that point without arising suspicion, so he surreptitiously steals a revolver and a handful of assorted bullets from Carl's office and desk. Jacob is MIA under the excuse that he is hungover from the night before. We don't see... Hank's interactions with Jacob, but Jacob, I guess, originally is told not to come and not Mm -hmm. go, but then Sarah changes that plan up. Right when they drive out there and arrive at the location and are about to split up to search, Jacob shows up, which annoys Hank, but he can't do anything about it now. We find out that Sarah called him. Well, which Jacob just announces, which if you're Carl or fucking Baxter... I feel like it's weird the way he says it, even. It should give them pause, like, okay. I talked to Sarah. Well, I think a big part of this ending here is that Baxter assumes that they took the money. Yeah. But he's not 100% sure. But he's thinking it's definitely possible. Right. Because, again, that may play into the whole timeline of the crash thing. Yeah. Where he's like, what do you mean you heard a fucking plane? That cr- mm-hmm. that would have crashed weeks earlier or whatever. I don't know. And then it all kind of <laughs> sets us up for a bit of a standoff. We know as the audience that Hank has the gun with maybe one bullet. But then when Carl tells Jacob to get his rifle, I'm like, all right, this could be building to something here. Although it does it not give you some pause. Jacob allowed to own a gun. Well, <laughs> it's America. I know. As the four men head into the woods, Carl has them split up as planned. It ends up being Carl that finds it. Technically, Hank found it, but he doesn't alert anyone. Right. He knows where it is. Carl fires his gun into the air to alert the others. Hank panics, runs, and tries to warn him about Baxter, but he's too late. Baxter shoots Carl in the back, killing him. By the way, GoldenEye, golden gun rules in play throughout this whole movie. Everyone immediately dead upon one shot. Yeah, they really do simplify the the gun deaths here. At this point, I would guess that the only reason Baxter doesn't just shoot Hank is because now he knows for a fact that they've been in the plane and taken the money. Because what the fuck is he running up and warning Carl about? Right. If he's just playing along, like, oh, yeah, we heard a plane, blah, 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 then he wouldn't be running up going, he's not who he says, he's not who he says. (laughs) Make him show his badge. So now he can't necessarily kill Hank immediately because there's going to be a question of, well, where's the money if it's not in this plane? At gunpoint, Baxter forces Hank to retrieve the money from the plane. This gives him an opportunity to try to load the gun, which Baxter doesn't think he has because he was given a whistle (laughs) to alert everyone. Yeah, your brother Jacob gets a gun, but here's your whistle. Well, it was Jacob's own gun. I know. In the plane, Hank is scrambling and scrambling. He's got all these different size bullets. None of them are fitting. He's trying to load it. 
and then he manages to distract Baxter with the smaller amount of money he had returned to the plane, which gives him enough time to pull to get the, the gun and kill Baxter, which he doesn't hesitate to, which I think is actually kind of a funny moment in a weird, dark way, because Baxter thinks, oh, this ordinary hillbilly, he doesn't have it in him, That's but he right. doesn't know that he's already killed several people. Yeah. That's it. Where the fuck is the rest? So you had a piece, huh? But you're not the cold-blooded type, are you, Mr. Mitchell? Looks like we're both going to have an awful lot of explaining to do. Just me. Hank then starts to concoct another story to tell the authorities, but Jacob just can't do it, not anymore. He doesn't want to live with the memories of what they've done. He doesn't want to live with the guilt. Jacob asks Hank to kill him too and frame Baxter for it. When Hank refuses, Jacob threatens to commit suicide, which could potentially implicate them both in the whole conspiracy. Although, at this point, I wouldn't put anything past Hank. I still feel like Hank would come up with some story. Yeah, I know. A heartbroken Hank kills Jacob with Baxter's pistol. I guess part of it would be which gun he shot himself with, maybe. Right. It would be hard to explain the story a certain way. I don't know. Make it look like the bad guy did it, Hank. Mom, I'm almost home. I'm tired, Hank. And, 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 and I don't care. It's okay with me. I, I'm not. I'm not afraid. No, I'm not afraid. It's perfect. Stop that, Jacob. It's it's perfect. No. Come on, Hank. No. Let me do something. This, this is the only thing. See, I don't want to sit around the rest of my life and think about this shit. I can't do it. Sit on the porch and drink. Can, I can't do it. Hours. So you're going to have to do it. A couple more hours. You can do home. this, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be perfect for you. And you got something to, you got something to go on for, Hank, and you know it. I don't want to be here. Oh, please. No. Come on, Hank. Let me do something. You just tell a little girl that I, that, you know, that the, the bear is from me. You know? If you love me, I think you'll do it. I'll give you a chance. I won't look at you. I won't look at you, Hank, but if you don't do it, then I'm going to do it, and then we're both going to be fucked, aren't we? And we don't need to both be fucked. I'll, I'll do it, Hank, if you don't. No! I'm telling you I will. Boy, it's, it's funny about, about finding this fucking plane, wasn't it?
Though Hank's story is believed and he is cleared of any wrongdoing and under no real suspicion, he learns from real FBI agents that many of the bills used in the initial ransom money had their serial numbers written down so they could be tracked. Ultimately, it was all for nothing. Using the money would mean risking getting caught. Hank returns home and burns it all. Yeah. Having to fight off a distraught Sarah to do so physically. Right. Pushing her away. One of the things that I enjoyed about that FBI scene is when they're telling him the signs of a liar, which I feel like you can kind of see some of these things in him throughout the movie. But, you know, when someone like Gary Cole, like in his performance, when he is lying, it's just like stone cold. There is no fidgetiness to it. Yeah, they do a little bit of a fake out with the audience. They make you think that Hank is being caught, essentially, because they're talking. They just cut to them talking about the signs of a liar. But then it turns out they're just asking him about Baxter. Because, again, recurring theme, he's not a suspect suspect in any way, shape, or form. They just don't see him that way. Even the FBI guys coming in. Right. Why would they? Yeah. They really don't have any reason to think that he's making up some elaborate story. Right. Because now everyone else is dead. So even Baxter can't be like, well, they found the money first. You know, there's nobody to even plant that seed. No. So th- there's no really nowhere the, for them to come up with that story because it's so crazy at this point right. and elaborate. In the closing narration, Hank, now a broken man, reflects on his losses. There is a desire for he and Sarah to return to normalcy, but it eludes them. And it is a, a story of two people now facing the hard truth of who they really are. And I think in a simple plan, it turns out that reality because of its limitations in other words your regular real life that is actually the fantasy of who you are when you're presented with this out of the ordinary thing this opportunity that's when all the cards are on the table and that's who you really are yes and you're fit in they're figuring that out and having to live with it now this has to ruin them i just can't imagine they're ever coming back from this yeah i i got the sense that at this point, you would be living only for your daughter. Your life is essentially over. Right. And that's the only thing that could probably keep you going, knowing what you did to your own brother and to all these other people who were essentially innocent, especially Carl, especially Lou's wife. Right. Dwight. Yes. I'm not going to throw Lou into that. No, no. He kind of brought her on himself, too. But, Yeah. It's a dark movie. It's definitely a funhouse mirror version of Fargo where they don't emphasize the Midwestern accents and the weirdness and the quirkiness and the jokes and the oddball nature of it. And even the violence is sort of toned down, which is weird. Raimi never really played in this particular kind of sandbox again, which is a shame. It is. I think that he ended up delivering a, a really strong end result here it's understated it's calm and calculated and it's actually far less violent than the original novel which is something of a surprise from the director of evil dead and evil dead 2 that he toned it down but yeah outside of that one really crazy burst of violence in lou's house the rest of it is very understated there's not like a lot of blood or anything like that really right but yeah it's an effective film i don't know that a ton of people have seen it it was new to me i had seen it up on streaming services before i was aware of it i always 
thought of the image of Billy Bob Thornton from this movie because it's been on the cover a lot. With that trapper hat. Yeah. Yeah. But didn't really know exactly what the deal was with it. So was happy to jump into this world. And yeah, it kind of made me feel a little bit regret about Sam Raimi not operating in this type of genre more. Yeah, it's good to see that it's been making the rounds on the different streamers. I know it was on Hulu recently, now it's on HBO Max, because I think there are times where it's not really available anywhere to stream except to rent it. So yeah, check it out on HBO Max. It's a fun, wintry film to sink your teeth into. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I guess we'll move along to recommendations real quick here at the end. I'm going to recommend a film called Vengeance, Ooh. which is now streaming on Peacock. It's a 2022 film written and directed by B.J. Novak from The Office. Oh, wow. Who I don't really like, if I'm putting all the cards on the table. <laughs> he seems like an insufferable douche to me. Okay. Never really been a big fan of his persona, per se. But he is the star of the film. It's an interesting film about a guy who is sort of a New York writer douche who hangs out with John Mayer and bags a lot of chicks, I guess. Wow, good Which is him. just sort of the beginning. Yeah. That's like where we're set up. And then a woman that he was hooking up with a couple of times from West Texas dies. And it turns out that she may have been telling her family that he was her boyfriend. And oh, so yes. they call him and he shows up. Okay. And then her brother is played by Boyd Holbrook, who believes that there's some big conspiracy at play and that she was actually murdered. And so he pitches this as a podcast to his boss, played by Issa Rae. Right. The idea being that these people all want to blame everything on conspiracies, which sort of plays into the America of 2022. Ashton Kutcher's in it, various other people. And then as he gets involved, he does actually start to peel back the layers, and it seems like maybe there is more to the story. And then you ultimately learn a lot about yourself and along the way and all these different crazy things. I don't want to spoil the whole movie. Yeah, but yeah. I will say I did enjoy it. I thought the ending was not the most satisfying ending ever, but it was decent, and it was definitely an interesting film worth checking out. I think it had a brief theatrical run, but yeah, it's it was available on Peacock, and I liked it. Yeah, I actually started watching that on a plane, but I hadn't finished it, so I'll have to dive back in now that it's on Peacock. Yeah. that it for you? Yes. I'm just going to do a quick one. Since I've been loving season two of White Lotus, I've just been finding it so enjoyable to watch. I went back and watched Mike White's earlier series for HBO with show favorite Laura Dern, Enlightened. I'm most of the way through season one, and I'm enjoying that too. It's a little bit different feel, but you can kind of understand the crossover between the two as well. And anything that starts off with someone that's just having like a mental breakdown at work is totally for me so i've been enjoying that and that's on hbo max yep. as well as a simple plan and vengeance is on peacock thank you so much for listening follow the show on twitter at greatest pod and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, podbean wherever you're finding us we would love for you to take the opportunity to give us a rating and review i know 
these are just words going in one ear and out the other most times. Every podcast has the same spiel, but we actually do love reading that shit. It's, yeah. it's, it's a huge deal. We're a pretty small DIY podcast, so that kind of stuff really makes it seem worth it. Oh, well, we recently had asked the listeners to let us know what episode they first found us with. I know we got that from a lot of people, but maybe going forward, work that into the rating and reviews. Yeah, that's cool. Some people already were doing that sometimes. With, yeah, that's with true. Those, which yeah. is always fun. Always interesting. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter. We'll send that to you just in time for the holidays, maybe. There might still be enough Ooh, yeah. time for that to get there. We'll see. I guess mail is probably a little slower around Christmas. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. If you come from the show and find us on there, let us know and we'll be sure to follow you back because, like I've said a million times, I'm not really paying close attention to the follower <laughs> thing anymore. Yep. But yeah, we definitely want to follow people who found us from the podcast for sure. It's a great social media app if you don't use it. It doesn't really have a lot of the negativity and bullshit of other places because it, honestly, because it kind of limits what people can do. <laughs> Because people are shitheads. Totally. So they need to be limited. It's really just logging in movies and reviewing them. And yeah, you'll probably get occasional people who comment some bullshit, but it's it's pretty laid back compared yeah, I would to other say places. For the most part, you don't really get that. Yeah, it's not like fuck you or some Yeah. <laughs> or the crazy shit you'll see on Twitter. <laughs> it's pretty normal. People who like movies and giving their star ratings and all that kind of shit. All right, so thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Donut and they gave me a receipt for the donut.
I don't need a receipt for a donut. I'll just give you the money. You give me the donut. And the transaction. We don't need to bring ink and paper into this. I, I just cannot imagine a scenario where I'd have to prove that I bought a donut. Some skeptical friend. Don't even act like I didn't get that donut. I got the documentation right here. <laughs> oh wait, it's back home in the fire. Under D for donut. <laughs> <laughs>